Good morning again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I don't know when the phrase was coined. Uh, it can't be that long ago, even though the sentiment behind it is timeless. But you've probably heard the phrase, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. Right? And uh, out of respect for that point of view, I have respect for that point of view, because it is an expression of humility at one level. It is acknowledging that there is more to reality than what we can see, feel, taste, touch, reproduce, and, 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 and observe under a microscope. There's an awareness and a set of experiences that conspire or compile to communicate with them that, you know what, there's probably more to this and I probably shouldn't rule out the possibility that there is more than what I can see. That's humble. And when it comes to, I'm not religious, look, every institution has failed you at some point in, in human history. Every, every organization that has ever come together composed of people <laughs> disappoints, harms, fails, including the church in, in more instances that we might like to admit. And so at some level, you can understand the apprehension that people have with so quote-unquote organized religion, okay? I'm expressing my respect for that point of view. We're coming up on the 25th anniversary, which is, to put it not humbly, one of the most colossal directorial decisions, colossal directorial errors ever made, and that was the release of the prequels to Star Wars. <laughs> but 25 years ago, Bill Moyers, you know, famous Southern Baptist, works in a presidential administration, sits down with George Lucas in 1999 in Time Magazine and has a little conversation about, what do you think about this? What is the force? Is that God and all that stuff? And, and Bill Moyers had done his research and, and realized that a lot of people that were critiquing George Lucas at the time was, you've created a mythology that gives people kind of a basis for their own thinking about theology, and what it is is really a spirituality, quote, a spirituality with no strings attached. And Lucas says, oh, well, um, in so many words, I wouldn't want anybody to come up with a theology based on the mythology I've created with the force. It's not meant to be that. It's too thin. But that is sort of an example of where people have, why, why, does, why does that so grab people's attention? Why, why did people dress up in stormtrooper outfits again? I mean, who does that, Seamus? Um, <clears throat> Why does the force so resonate with so many people? Because it's a spirituality with no strings attached. It's the idea of a greater power out there that's really strong, but it really doesn't ask anything of me. I just need John Rock. That's all I need. We have been, for many months now, talking about the Holy Spirit because we believe that there is something called spirituality. And for nine weeks, we were talking about this thing called the fruit of the Spirit, of the character that the Spirit produces in us, and it's like an orange. It has several sections to it, and everything is one. It's not, I'm, you're never good at love, but bad at peace. You're never patient, but full of joy, impatient, but full of joy. They're, they are one. Today marks sort of a gear shift. We've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit for a long time, and now we're going to talk about what's known as, in the New Testament, as the gifts of the Spirit. 
And some of you are in this room going, finally, that's what we want to talk about first. And others of you are like, oh, please, Katie, bar the door. Here we go. Because when you start talking about gifts of the Spirit, just pick a Christian theological tradition, and it's going to come up with his own version of what those gifts are and whether they are still in play and how do they work and how does one get them and what does one do with them. I mean, there are theological denominational lines that are drawn on the basis of the answer to those questions. There's not a little controversy in them. And so with a certain, um, where angels fear to tread trembling, we're going to step into that world because the New Testament does and we ought not shy away from the difficult conversations. But before we ever talk about the gifts of the Spirit, in particular, which we'll start next week, we've got to back up, we've got to pause, and we've got to ask ourselves, what is a true spirituality? And, and Paul knows that he's got to talk about this because he knows what's already come and what already the church at Corinth is dealing with. We want to ask ourselves, what is a true spirituality? And if I went to 40 different people out on the streets, the drum circle in Asheville, Main Street in Hendersonville, what spirituality? They would give me 40 different answers, but they would all converge on this one idea. I think they would agree that spirituality is, in some sense, you have been illumined. You have been awakened to that which is greater than you, but which is largely unseen, but still real. What is a Christian spirituality? On what does it center? We're going to look at just three verses in 1 Corinthians 12 that's going to set us up for talking about the gifts of the Spirit next week. But when it comes down to a true spirituality, it means being illumined to three things. The emptiness of idols, the fullness of Jesus, and by inference or by implication, the relationship between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. If we don't go here first, we have no business talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Spirituality is being illumined to the emptiness of idols, the fullness of Jesus, and the relationship between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Okay, life moves pretty fast. If you don't look up, you might miss it, Ferris would say. These three verses will go fast too. So if you will, I want you to stand if you can. Turn in your Bible if you got it. We'll start in 1 Corinthians 12. In just the first three verses. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That's it. Told you it was fast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You can sit now. Uh, He starts very soberly. I do not want you to be uninformed. It's it's almost like a gun safety class. I I really need you to take stock, haha, very, of what we're getting into here. I'll be here all week. Um, I need you to take stock of what the spiritual gifts are, or, or what are those in whom the Spirit is at work to bring apart, to bring about His purposes. And so we have to think very carefully about what the gifts are, because if you know any part of the context of, the, of this whole letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul begins soberly, because 
The gospel has made its way into the churches of Corinth. It's begun to make great headway. Churches have formed, and yet already, as early as chapter 1, he's talking about some of you are following Apollos, some of you are following Paul, some of you have already begun to polarize and sort of align yourself with certain personalities. I mean, when does that ever happen? And already they're dividing. They are losing the plot. And that whole concern in Paul's mind that leads him to say what he says here in chapter 12 finds its way into the chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, when you people come for communion, when you come for the table, you, you have already forgotten what you're doing. You have forgotten what the table is about. You have also forgotten that we are a body. And there's already now this division among class. Those who have more are forgetting those who have less. Some are coming and gorging themselves on the food as if it's a, like a meal meant to sort of gluttonously pursue it. You're forgetting yourself. And so there's these new lines that are forming within the life of the church. There's already division. And if, if that's happening when it comes to aligning yourself with personalities, if that's what's happening when you are aligning yourself according to class within this new hodgepodge of people from all over the place, well, good Lord, to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, here's just one more opportunity to get sideways with each other about something that you can divide over. And that's why he's got to start here in chapter 12 about what's going on. I don't want you to be uninformed because you will become a train wreck if you don't know carefully about what is a true spirituality with respect to thinking about the gifts of the Spirit. And so what he's got to do is, I need you to refresh your memory about yourself. And in verse 2, he says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. There was a time when you were not smitten with the Lord Jesus. When you had no knowledge of him and had no category for the idea that God loved you to the extent that he did by dying for you and his son. You had no clue you were a pagan. Now, look, <clears throat> when I was in college there was the Pagan Student Alliance, right? And the Christians would look down at the Pagan Student Alliance. And the Pagan Student Alliance would look down on Christians and everybody that had religion. So, you know, pagan, all pagan means is, is uh, from the Latin word pagus, which means small town. Um, to be, why was that funny? Um, and, and then there was the heathen, right? What's the heathen? The one that lived out in the heather, the heath, the, the, the rural areas, the ones that had no sense of religion. And, 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 and heathens and pagans, they had their own gods. But lest anybody in this room, I mean, some of you may be still part of the Pagan Student Alliance. If you are, I, this is wonderful. I'm glad you're here. Um, when you hear the word pagan, it's usually used in a derogatory way. There's a, there's a wonderful essay that we'll share with you during Advent that C.S. Lewis wrote that kind of got lost in the shuffle in the last 60 years. It was a, a Christmas sermon he gave, and it's called A Christmas Sermon to Pagans. And in that essay at Christmas, he says, look, we're in a post-Christian world. Even in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis is saying, let's be honest with ourselves. This is a post-Christian culture. And he says, before you can ever hope to connect with post-Christians about Christianity, the post-Christians, first of all, need to become pagans again. Because at least pagans had two things in common with Christians. One, they believed there was an unseen world and full of deities. And two, they believed in an objective truth. Post-Christians in that day and in our day believed in neither. So if you want to talk about an incremental move between post-Christian and Christian, Lewis is saying, 
they got to become pagans first. So he's not looking down on paganism. But what Paul is saying here is that when you were pagans, you had your gods. You had mute idols. When, when Paul walks through the Oropagus in Acts 17, and he notices all of these monuments to deities, and eventually he happens upon an altar which says, to an unknown God. And Paul says there in Acts 17, what is unknown to you, I have come to make known to you. And in the course of his time there, he has come to speak well and persuade them of this one idea, of the emptiness of idols. That what you once had, what you were once aligned with, once what, what you once had great allegiance to, they're empty. I understand why you'd go there. We all worship something. But these idols, they don't speak. Now when I say to a a contemporary audience in 2023, and I talk about mute idols, you, you, like I have in the past, thought, look, <laughs> I, don't, I don't bow to anything. I don't, I don't have any icon corner in my house, and I don't offer incense and you know, throw pennies in the lake, whatever it might be, to my idols. And a lot of you think, well, what you think is kind of like this moment from Major League, right? So the World Series just happened. Go Rangers. And... And in, and in this moment, um, here's what most modern people think of when I say, you know, mute idolatry, it's a thing. This is what you think. Jobu, ayúdame en este momento. Para que me des el poder para conquistar el cuerpo. Te daré mi devoción para siempre poderoso. Hey, pasa there. Pedro? That's the Asi. I cannot hit curveball. Straight ball, I hit it very much. Curveball, that's our friend. I asked Jobu to come. Take fear from bats. I offer him cigar and rum. He will come. You know, you might think about taking Jesus Christ as your savior instead of fooling around with all this stuff. Jesus, I like him very much, but he no help with curveball. That's the Allstate guy, right? You're in good hands with Allstate, right? That's that guy, <laughs> right? That's what people think when they think about idols. You know, they do their own little rituals and their own little thing. And, you know, all the football teams, they touched, you know, the, the, the picture in, you know, uh, Newt Rockney at Notre Dame. That didn't help yesterday. Um, <laughs> right. They do that. We do that. You think, that's what people think about idols. <clears throat> we think idols are things of the past. And I'm, I'm here to suggest to all of us, myself included, that they are is very much present. We... We pursue things that are not worthy of the allegiance we give them. And a true spirituality by the Spirit is out to illumine those things in our hearts that is not worth the effort that we give to them, the allegiance. A few weeks ago, we, we showed you a clip from that film Whiplash, which, man, caveat emptor, buyer beware, the language, is, language in it will make you peel your ears back. 
but it's all about a, a young man who um, is an excellent drummer, a prodigy drummer, and he goes to this famous jazz school, and um, J.K. Simons is, is the professor. But uh, here in this moment, um, the protagonist of the film, the budding drummer, is having to have a conversation that is going to give us a picture of what idolatry looks like in a very subtle, mundane, but very modern way. This is why I don't think that we should be together. And I've thought about it a lot, and this is what's gonna happen. Okay, I'm gonna keep pursuing what I'm pursuing. And because I'm doing that, it's gonna take up more and more of my time, and I'm not gonna be able to spend as much time with you. And even when I do spend time with you, I'm gonna be thinking about drumming. I'm gonna be thinking about jazz music and my charts and all that, and because of that, you're gonna start to resent me. And you're gonna tell me to ease up on the drumming, spend more time with you because you're not feeling important. And I'm not gonna be able to do that. And really, I'm just gonna start to resent you for even asking me to stop drumming. And we're just gonna start to hate each other. And it's gonna get very, it's gonna be ugly. And so for those reasons, I'd rather just, you know, break it off clean. Because I wanna be great. And you're not. I want to be one of the greats. And I would stop you from doing that? Yeah. Because I'm just some girl who doesn't know what she wants, and you have a path, and you're going to be great, and I'm going to be forgotten, and therefore you won't be able to give me the time of day because you have bigger things to pursue. That's exactly my point. You're right, we should not be dating. He wants to be great. He has a path toward greatness in his mind, and she's in the way of that. Here's someone who loves him, who has loved him, who has supported him, with whom he has been vulnerable, and she him, and they have found something rich and wonderful between them, and yet, now this thing called drumming, the irony of it is, drumming is loud, but it is a mute idol. It is a thing that he has come to value more than what is valuable and loving and for him, and for him even in spite of him, and he has chosen the other way. And that little moment can be replicated in a billion ways in our world. Not a relationship, but something else. Later in the film, he comes to his senses, and she has moved on. Smart girl. The thing about the Lord, he knows you have mute idols, and he knows you can walk for decades following them, thinking that they're really God. And he never moves on. And he is always there to say, my love for you is steadfast, if only you believe me. You and I have to accept the category that there is such a thing called idols. And then we, then we have to kind of do some work. David Pallison was a, a counselor and a professor, and uh, he died in the last five years. <clears throat> and he wrote a, 
an essay that invited every person, every Christian, uh, to do an inventory of their own heart, and he called them x-ray questions. And the, that resource is in the resource doc this week. It's about 30 questions. Don't worry, you have to do them all at once. But uh, interspersed throughout all of those 30 questions were the kinds of questions that if you sit with them for a while, they begin to kind of prick your conscience a little bit and expose, like, what is so motivating, animating you to do what you do, and is that really worth the investment of heart, soul, mind, and strength that you think it is? So just, this is going to be fast, I'm not asking you to reflect on any of these, but here's some of the questions that he asks that I think would maybe justify you giving some time to it. Where do you bank your hopes? What, What hopes are you working toward or building your life around? What do you fear? Fear is the flip side of your desire. For example, if I desire your acceptance, then I fear your rejection. <laughs> Who struggles with that? Or what about this? What do you desperately hope will last in your life? What do you feel must always be there? What, what can you not live without? You sit with that, you begin to ask that, you, you start to maybe chip away at what is behind glass for you right now that you didn't really recognize was there. Okay, what about this? What do you see as your rights? What do you feel entitled to? What do you feel is your right to expect, seek, require, or demand? How you answer that question will say a lot about you and about your view and about your theology. What do you think, if I don't have that, I'm being denied? What's this? What do you pray for? Huh. Yeah, what, what you pray for, uh, once again, is a window into your soul and into your innermost desires, your innermost being. I think I've got two more. What do you say if only, if our only's actually define our vision of paradise? They picture our biggest fears and our greatest disappointments. They can reveal where we tend to envy others. They picture where we wish we could rewrite our own life story. They picture where we are dissatisfied and what we crave. Yep. All of these, they are trying to have you live beyond the superficial largely unconscious way of running your life. Uh, at risk of being too autobiographical. I, you know, I was the president of my choir for a couple of years in high school. Mom put me in choir when I was in kindergarten. I did it all the way through 12th grade and loved it, right? It was a great time. And I become president. And man, I would come up with every certain motivation to try to get everybody to like, give your best and do what you want and let's sing heartily. It's for the Lord, Right? And then I get to college and Jesus kind of becomes real to me in a different way. And then I kind of come to this really haunting realization. Those years doing what I did as the president of my choir, that had nothing to do with God. That was all about me. What would make me look good? What would make me feel okay about myself? For the Lord, if only. It's all this. True spirituality is out to illumine us of the emptiness of our idols. And you've all got them. Uh Uh-oh. Flip side, what's the other thing true spirituality is about? It is about to illumine us to the fullness of Jesus. Listen to verse 3 again. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. On its face, what? Jesus is a curse? Jesus, what are, you, what are you talking about? Let me see if I can set it in context. In our day, there are people, you could rattle off your list of who you think qualifies in this way, that we speak of as charismatic people. 
They have presence. They're charismatic, and it's from the word charisma. Next week when we talk about the gifts, that's the charisma, the gifts of the Spirit. It's where we get charismatic. They're charismatic, they're profound, whatever it might be, and they hold our attention. Uh, JFK, MLK, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, Winston Churchill, whatever you want to say. They all had this kind of thing, this ability to connect. They had charisma, and they held our attention. In, in the day in which Paul is speaking, many pagans appealing to many deities, and there were those in that day and in that culture who seemed to be able to almost channel divinity by the way they would speak. They would have these, what came to be defined as ecstatic experiences. They would emote, they would speak in such a way that it almost felt like, like they're out of the way and now they're just literally channeling something that is not of them. And if you're a Corinthian in that day and you see somebody do that, you think, whoa, they, they've got something real there. And Paul is here to disabuse them of some misperceptions about what charismatic figures who would speak in certain ways. Because there were those in that day who would speak profoundly, charismatically, and they would say, Jesus is accursed. And Paul was there to say, I'm here to tell you that if the Holy Spirit is in anyone, they will never say Jesus is accursed. And it's only by the agency and the activity and the working of the Spirit in people that they will ever say Jesus is Lord. And okay, you hear that and you think, man, there's a lot of people that say Jesus is Lord, but that they, they resemble nothing of Jesus in their ways. Paul's not saying you can't actually say the words Jesus is Lord if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, but you will not say Jesus is Lord and mean it and rest in it and submit yourself to it unless the Holy Spirit is at work in us. I mean, just sit with the phrase, Jesus is Lord. If the Holy Spirit is in us, when you say the word Jesus, you're saying we're talking about something specific, concrete, narrow, definable in him. Jesus is Lord. Not just anybody, Jesus. When you say Jesus is Lord, it's not qualified, it's not partial, it's not temporary, it's unceasing. Jesus is Lord, yesterday, today, and forever. And when you say Jesus is Lord, not just a sage, not just a teacher, not just an impressive figure with a God consciousness, you're saying he is Lord. To him I am both accountable and desiring to do that. He has a claim on me like no one else does. For the Holy Spirit to be in us and dwelling us is for us to be able to say that with conviction. Jesus is Lord. Why do I have to state for you what is the obvious? Because that has everything to do with how you and I think of the spiritual gifts, whatever they might be. Stick around next week and maybe we'll start talking about that in particular. When it comes to discussing the special spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit, you and I need to be aware of something both subtle and sinister to which we are all susceptible in thinking about the spiritual gifts. And I want to hearken back to our friend Antonio Salieri. 
Here's, here's, the, here's the still of him staring at a crucifix saying, Grazie, Signor. I, I asked that you would make me a great composer that I might give unto you all that glory, return it unto you with, without uh, any qualification. I want to show forth your glory by expressing the gift that you might give me. And I asked for it. My dad wanted me to be an accountant. I wanted to be, you know, one who traded in beauty and make all sorts of beautiful music. Would you do that? And here in this moment, everything is wonderful. I'm playing. I'm composing. I'm taking delight in that. Oh, thank you, Lord. Well, if you know the rest of that story, you know there's more to it. Because soon Antonio Salieri will discover Mozart. Mozart, who demonstrated a kind of brilliance, was a prodigy, that at some point Antonio Salieri had a gut check. And that, well, watch, it, it's gonna, it takes a little bit to develop, so be patient. But just watch what happens when Antonio Salieri, how, his, how he develops, so to speak. Tell me, if you had been me, wouldn't you have thought God had accepted your vow? And believe me, I honored it. I was a model of virtue. I kept my hands off women. I worked hours every day teaching students, many of them for free, sitting on endless committees to help poor musicians. Work and work and work. That was all my life. And it was wonderful. Everybody liked me. I liked myself. Until he came. like a lust in my body and then deny me the talent it was incomprehensible what was God up to was it possible I was being tested but why him why choose Mozart to teach me lessons in humility my heart was filling up Ooh, such hatred for that little man. For the first time in my life, I began to know really violent thoughts. From now on, we are enemies. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy. 
and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind. I will block you. I swear it. Grazie, signore. The beginning of the service. Grazie, signore. Now, seeing how in his mind, God has looked past him and given an even greater gift to someone else who in his mind doesn't deserve it. Does anybody hear the parable of the two sons here a little bit? Thanks, Craig, for reminding me. The older son was never in it for his father. Antonio Salieri, he's actually the star of the film. It's not about Mozart. It's about the transformation of Salieri. He gives you the impression that he's all in this for the glory of God. Give me thy gift that I might sing your praises. And what we discover is God was not God. Jesus was not Lord. Jesus was his concierge. Jesus was his sugar daddy. Jesus was whatever I need, give it to me because this is about me. It's not about you. When I say that true spirituality is about being illumined in the fullness of Jesus, it is this. If Jesus is Lord, then you are grateful for whatever gifts he gives you and you take delight in being able to express them on his behalf. But if you don't, that's okay because Jesus is enough. And every one of us, myself included, we miss the point. Jesus is no longer just beautiful to us, to borrow a phrase. He's useful. And when you make him useful, he's no longer Lord. The fullness of Jesus is what the Spirit is out to convey to us. What does that look like then? Let me kind of wrap it up this way. If, if true spirituality is about to illumine us to the emptiness of idols, and then also the fullness of Jesus, then that's going to help us figure out how what we did over the last nine weeks fits with what we're going to do for the next four at least. What is the relationship of the fruit of the Spirit to the gifts? And I will cut to the chase. You and I ought never be as concerned with the expression of our gifts of the Spirit, whatever they might be, in such a way that it eclipses our attention to the fruit of the Spirit being cultivated in us. The gifts of the Spirit are never more important than the fruit of the Spirit dwelling in each one of us. Our usefulness to the Lord, however you want to put it, is never as important as who we are to Him in secret. I remember with bracing clarity, the first time I ever read this essay in 2007 by Tim Keller. I, I had been ordained for just a couple years and and began to see how even some of that was an admixture full of self. That's a story for another day. But what he will say here about those who are in either vocational or volunteer ministry applies to everybody in this room, having nothing to do with uh, whatever your vocation or what you volunteer in most. But he said this, if you don't do something about your lack of spiritual fruit and instead build your identity on your spiritual gifts and ministry activity, there will be some kind of collapse. 
You will blow up at someone or lapse into some sin that destroys your credibility, and everyone, including you, will be surprised, but you shouldn't be. Spiritual gifts without spiritual fruit is like a tire slowly losing air. Christian ministry changes people. It can make us far better or far worse Christians than we would have been otherwise, but it will not leave us unchanged. That, that applies what you do with your 40 hours a week, if it's 60 hours a week, or whatever it might be, in vocational ministry or volunteer ministry or anything else you do in life. If the gifts that God has given you in the Spirit, which seeks to build up the church, which, which has downstream effects in the common good and, and the life of the people around you, if that becomes your focus more so than whether or not the fruit of the Spirit is alive and well and cultivated in you, you, you set yourself on a dark path. I've set myself on a dark path. And that's why we have to keep, like Jim said at the very beginning of the service, we're communion care. We're here because we need to be here, not because we need to check off a box. Unless the Lord grounds us and humbles us and strengthens us and confronts us and consoles us, unless we see the forest for the trees, namely that we are forgiven in him and we belong to him and we have his favor and his forgiveness and his future forever, unless that becomes the song of our heart, your usefulness, at least how you think so, will become the song of your heart. And then that song will take on a dark key. Whatever the gifts are, whatever ways in which they persist, however they are to be cultivated, not unimportant questions but they're just not as important as thinking about what does it mean to be spiritual before him. Craig had a good idea. I wonder if this week you and I might pray for the Lord to show us what we long for too much. And if he's good and powerful like he is, he won't withhold from exposing that to you in some way. Maybe subtly, maybe just one thing, but I can think of worse things to do with your time. Go through those questions that David Pallison came up with and allow that to frame up some of your thinking and praying. This is why we come here. Not to prove anything to him, but to become more like him. And with the Spirit's help in our own capacity, incapacity, and sinfulness, he will do just that. Okay, let's pray. Whatever mute idols sit on our shoulder or on our shelf or in our earbuds or on our screens or in the investment of our money and our time and our talent, would you bring them to light? Would you help us not to fear delighting in gifts that you have given us for the good of your church? There is satisfaction in it. And I pray that you would help us <clears throat> never to lose sight of that and, and never to feel guilty about enjoying that. But I also ask that you would keep us from the siren song of being defined by that. So that we might give out of a sense of your lordship, not because you are useful to us. Strengthen us, Father, with a sense of your greatness. That we would not seek to be great, independent of you. That's all. In Jesus' name. Amen.